Hey, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of our clown show that we call the Justice Revolution. <laughs> Is that getting old? Do I need to stop saying that? I'm just curious. <laughs> no, I'm just I teasing. think it's funny. Ah, okay, good. I just want to, you know me, I'm, I like to throw a little humor into things, get some, get some people laughing. So, um, but anyway, I wanted to thank you all for, uh, want to thank you all for joining us. I am your host, James the Patriot. Today is August the 11th in the year of our Lord, 2023. I have my beautiful co-hosts with me, Erica and Justice. Say hello, ladies. Hey, guys. So, Erica, as you guys know, hails from the great state of Indiana. Justice from just south of me up in the mountains here. Um, beautiful time of year here in the mountains. It's really pretty. Although, we did have the dork-in-chief was in town the other day, and Ugh. your entire city was shut down, wasn't it? justice yeah that was yeah. that was an injustice yeah the pretender in chief as we like to call him right <laughs> I, I just don't understand it i don't, I don't get either. it i don't either we're going to talk a little bit about some of the ridiculous things that happened while he was here or along those lines so but it's sad it, it's just sad but before we get to that i want to say hello and welcome to my good friend and our guest brandon the big sib from the beautiful state of Louisiana. What's up, Mr. Brandon, how are you? Thank you for having me today, glad to be here. Hopefully we can uh, open a few eyes and ears to understand our uh, trajectory here and why everything is so hard fought. Yes, yes, yes it is. We're gonna go over, uh, we got a, a really good show today. I mean, I say that all the time because I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> But I really feel like we do because we got an interesting ruling from a magistrate judge here on a case that uh, involves a good friend of mine. Um, we're going to go over that, uh, her report and recommendation um, and, and so on and so forth. But before we get to that, let's talk about some of the world events, some things that have happened recently. So um, some of you may have seen or you may have seen in the news that uh, Biden was here in Utah earlier this week. And as a pre precursor to that, I don't know what this background story is. All I know is that there was an individual who lived um, south of me by about two hours uh, who was posting some online threats, making uh, threats to take out Biden, which... As you guys know, you make threats like that, you're going to get some people looking at you. It's just that's just how it is. All right. Yes, we have the right to free speech. Yes, we have the right to say what we want, but we also have to be responsible for what we say. And if it's a credible threat, you got to know the three letter agencies are going to look at it. And, and I'm not talking about the female body inspectors. That's the other three letter agency. <laughs> OK, so that agency, in, in my opinion. This is my opinion, and I want to get Brandon's thoughts on this too, but what they did is they executed a no-knock warrant on a 75-year-old man who was 300-plus pounds, needed a cane to walk, couldn't oh. get out of bed without help. Okay? They executed a no-knock warrant at 6.15 in the morning. Um, I don't know all the details. The body camera footage hasn't come out. I don't think they're ever going to release it. Who knows? Um, but at the end of the day, they this three-letter agency shot and killed this man. So he's dead. Okay? That's where that is. Now, there's been a lot of speculation going on as to this or that and everything else, but at 
what I'm gathering from this is you make threats like this, you, you're going they, they move beyond just showing up to your house and knocking on your door and saying, are you serious? Are you really going to do stuff like this? They're just, they're going straight to the bust down your door, throw the warrant in your face. If you do anything that shows any kind of level of resistance, I don't know what resistance this guy put up, but they shot him and killed him. So unless you're president Trump, because there's been a myriad exactly. of online death threats. I mean, there's, yeah, unless it's the other side, right? You have a, a well-known celebrity, and this picture has been all over the internet, holding up a severed head, a blood-covered severed head of, of President Trump, and nothing has been had nothing has taken place. So, what I want to say to all of you who are watching or listening on the platforms that we are um, that we are broadcasting on, you need to exercise due diligence and extra caution in everything you do. Do not. I mean, I know our emotions get the best of us sometimes. I, myself included, you know, you say something off the cuff, you have, you, you don't really think, you don't really mean you're going to follow through with that. It's just like, you know, how many times have we just been upset and angry and say, you know what, say it again, I'm going to kill you, right? You know, you're not really going to do that. Like I, I hear my seven-year-old, one of my twins tell my other twin, he's going to kill him all the time. Yeah, that's <laughs> not going to He's a seven-year-old, okay? But... You guys need to understand, this is the craziness we're living under right now. And these people, the rule of law, be damned. Due process of law, be damned. You're going to see that today with the information recovery. So, Brandon, did you did you see or did you hear about this story? I did, and it's an unfortunate uh, fact uh, that uh, we have people so hyper-polarized at this point in time. Uh, that feel things are wrong and then act out in insane and illogical ways. But the truth is most people aren't aware where we're really at in, in, in a time frame. We are in the midst of the largest culture war uh, this country has ever seen. Well, and I'll go back the second largest culture war uh, leading up to uh, the civil war. And then the uh, presiding years going all the way up until 1871, because uh, in that time frame there, we also had uh, what was what was called the Democratic Socialist Party or what most people call it as the Ku Klux Klan. Yep. But they were a political terror group and were not uh, what people think it is, a racist organization. They were the, the, the entire organization was fit to stop uh, Republicans from passing uh, laws and treaties that liberated people so understand the the cycle but here we are again today in the in, in this man's instance right um you cannot speak in this sort of way uh, and talk openly like this and of course he was challenging them there's there's other things that's come out on twitter about him and things of that nature um, but when you speak this way you you you've allowed them to justify using deadly force uh, because you're taking pictures of yourself with with uh, large ammunition and things of that, that nature, and even posted that he would kill the FBI if they showed up. This is not how things get done. Uh, so the other side are ideologues, first of all, and people must must recognize this. Uh, in this culture war, uh, they're going to use every trick in the book uh, to obfuscate from the truth, and that means to shadow, darken. Uh, and you, we cannot act in this way, even... A reactionary stance is never going to do you any good. You must be able to think through things through intelligently and act with moral and virtue, right? 
Yes. Um, and when you do that, when you practice that, you won't make these slip ups. Uh, and I'll give everybody an example uh, for me. Uh, I'm very much aware of the ESG Marxist uh, uh, ideology and the fascist ideation that is going on in this country today where people are status by, by religion uh, or the LGBTQ PI plus what, whatever, whatever uh, religious uh, ideology they're following is status in, in, in uh, perfection in actual how they perceive it. But when you do that, you have to be the opposite. So we're for individual liberty, right? So to say, I'm going to kill somebody or I'm going to do this or that is actually a violation of our, our principles. And we should never violate those due to anger at any point in any time. We should always be able to speak intelligently and with always never move outside of our principle box. And what do I mean by that? So today in the hyperpolarized camps of Trump, Biden and everything else, right? People move their moral standards and their principles to fit within the narrative of their, uh, their, uh, their demagogue. Um, mm -hmm. And so demagoguery means a tyrant within government. And what they do is forfeit their individual critical thinking skills to fit within that narrative of their demagogue that they worship. This is, this is, this is morally bankrupt. It, 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 it alleviates people for individual responsibility and personal accountability. Now, what really happened here with this man? Who knows? Uh, will we get the body cam footage? Who knows? Um, but yeah. it was a, it was a, a complete failure of judgment to post these things online uh, in the time frame that we're in when the FBI, CIA, and the modern administrative state is looking for justifications to hunt down, quote unquote, constitutionalists who are domestic terrorists. It's a mm -hmm. bad look. And that's what they're going for. They they must turn every single person in this country into a birth certificate, uh, sovereign citizen that actually challenges any of the uh, tyrannical uh, moves that they're making in this country. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. I mean, that, and that's why I'm just saying, you know, um, over here in the chat here, um, <clears throat> destruction along the Little Deschutes River. I'm not sure who that is, but I love your name, by the way. <laughs> um, in our Telegram chat in the Affidavits 101, he, he posted, he or she posted the video uh, that a neighbor took that shows, again, you guys do your own research draw your own conclusions but this is what we're up against and as brandon knows i mean brandon how many how many cases are you litigating currently in federal court five he's got five cases he's litigating in federal court have you gotten any favorable rulings from any of those yeah judges um yeah i mean even with maurice hicks currently uh, the fact that he's ruling and i was able to put the notice of appeal in um yeah, I mean, if you're pushing COVID, property tax, things of that nature, uh, and you're pushing it through the trial court, there's going to be one in probably 1,000 judges who aren't ideologically aligned with uh, the viewpoint that more government's better, right? So, exactly. and, and what do I mean? What do I mean by that? Um, let's let's get a framework here, Mike. The first part of this is to do evil in the first place. A person must must actually believe they're doing good. OK, so mm -hmm. this is an ideology. OK, 
Uh, a person's ideology is what they think, move, and act with, okay? And this is what gives them the justification for doing what, they, what they're doing. So we must, we must grasp and uh, understand, first off, 99% of the judges, 99% of the attorneys, and 90% uh, of the people accepted the tyrannical government of masking vaccinations and closed down every single one of, one of their, every their, single their one of avenues. Okay, so now here comes you, standing in truth, standing in virtue, standing in mor morality, right? And what, you, what you're doing is casting a light towards these people that they screwed up. Well, yep. here's the problem with that. Because in order for these people to continue on living, they've got they've they've only got one of two choices: either they must self-reflect and recognize their mistakes, or they double down into their their ideology. Now, this is this is one of those things that people will self-deceive themselves to make their actions seem justified. Okay, yeah. and instead of hearing reproaches or curses, right? They want to see receive honor and praise for doing the verbal virtuous thing. So when you're walking in that courtroom, you're not only challenging the status quo, you're you're challenging individual people who knowingly and willingly negligently violated the rights of the people. So if you think you're going to walk in there and it's going to be a cakewalk uh, and that you're just going to blow right by. Them, no, that's not the case. We're dealing with ideologues. OK, right. and their entire worldview is wrapped up in trying to justify how they acted during COVID-19. Well, when you understand that, when you grasp that, you know that the picture is bigger. And for five of my cases, right, or four of my cases, which concern COVID-19, uh, two of them are, are in the appellate court right now in the Fifth Circuit. Let's talk about good things. The Fifth Circuit's here in uh, Missouri versus Biden. I don't know if anybody's been listening in on 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 these deals with the judges uh, grilling the uh, uh, the government's lawyers who can't give a uh, an answer to why the, the restriction of the First Amendment uh, through all these uh, administrative agencies uh, is is constitutional. Then you have the FDA uh, with with a, a few other doctors that are challenged the constitutionality of, of the FDA, and then you have the CDC, uh, all in the Fifth Circuit right now, and all doing very badly for the government uh, and. This is the natural trajectory, right? So at this time, people are going to be screaming, wailing, gnashing of teeth. That's just what happens. Uh, and we've got the precedents already coming from the Supreme Court. And so it's a trickle-down effect. But you have to stay steadfast. And this is where the rules and continuing. So let me give everybody a, a, a deal here. I forced the judge, uh, Maurice Hicks, with a Rule 52 motion uh, to identify the findings of fact and conclusions of law uh, for why he denied my declaratory and injunctive relief and, and uh, failed to apply the strict scrutiny standard to Shelly D. Dick's orders. Well, I thought this through. Uh, so there's standards of review. Uh, two standards of review are required through Rule 52, and that is, well, there's three standards of re uh, review, but I've got two of them covered, Okay. And those two are questions of fact or questions of law. And then the second one is abuse of discretion. So when the judge failed to give me the findings of fact as required by the civil uh, rules of civil procedure, rule 52, I get, I get to appeal. So what have I done? I've set it up to where I can get to the fifth circuit into some adults 
And if the Fifth Circuit doesn't work, I get to take it to the Supreme Court for this injunctive and declaratory relief. And this is how you have to play it. For example, many of you are going to face 12B6 motions and 12B1 motions, right? Mm -hmm. So when they just sit there, uh, we've got three summary judgments filed in three of the cases. Okay, for what? Why? Uh, because if there's no genuine dispute of material fact, you force a judgment on the pleadings. Why are we doing that? That way we can, hey, look, the trial court judge is going to do what it wants to do anyway. Yeah, they're going to deny, they're, they're going to grant that motion anyway. Well, well, that's right. Well, you force you force the hand to get a judgment on the pleadings. Let's get to the appellate court. Uh, yeah. Let's let's go ahead and go because you've already gotten an abuse of discretion, uh, especially in all of our all of our case all of our cases have actual causes of action correctly pleaded, and there is no reason for any of the motions to di dismiss to be passed. And that's failure yeah. to state claim, and and the motion all of them none of them are valid, but yeah. you you have to box them in while you're in the trial court and raise every issue. And people wonder why the Rule 52 motion was 50-something pages. What did I bring up in that Rule 52 motion? Every single possible issue that could be raised is in that motion. Yes. Uh, so guess what I get to do when I go to the appellate court? We get to review the entire thing. And people yeah. forget these, these simple ideas that if it's not raised, while they're doing your their motions to dismiss and everything else, you are to raise many different issues that apply to your case. So therefore, this leads into James's discussion today. Why is judicial activism so hard to bypass? Yeah. Um, because judicial, judicial activism is based on, quote unquote, intent. Yes. Uh, well, well, unfortunately, intent allows the individual judge uh, to hypothesize and pontificate on the inner workings of some, what someone was thinking when they passed that statute or, uh, in the case of the Founding Fathers, what they were thinking when they passed the, uh, wrote the Constitution. However, yeah. that's, not, that's not the avenue of law that we are teaching. Uh, that it, what, the avenue of law that we are teaching is called originalism and textualism. That's the law. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. And the, the statute itself, the rules of canonical uh, uh, interpretation stipulate within the written words, the limitations and exceptions to all rules. OK. Yes. And so that is what is called judicial restraint. Yes. And and when you're working in it, you're going to find it, it's un, it's unfortunate truth. You're going to find more judicial activists than you are going to find judicial uh, uh, judicial restraint. The problem with that is is you must block uh, lock the judge in with the rules. And this is where Dr. Gray's course is really really great in that the rules do rule. However, you're not going to find that in every trial court because one, the attorneys don't abide by them. The attorneys are going to always bring up stuff outside your pleadings. It's yeah. it's just going to happen. They're using the uh, motions to dismiss as responsive pleadings uh, while at the same time claiming 12B1 and 12B6. And I'll give everybody, a, 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 and I'll shut up after this and let everybody else go. I'll give, I'll, I'll give the lunacy of this. One of my cases uh, has an actual EEOC charge. 
uh, from the Equal Opportunity Employment uh, Center, right, out of Title uh, Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. There's an actual charge uh, written that uh, uh, the Civil Rights Act was violated. And yet I got a 12B1 motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, right? (laughs) Well, how do you get that when you've already got a claim from a federal agency saying that there's 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 a cause of action here, but exactly, it's, still, it, it's they still did it anyway. Uh, yeah, this 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 is the lunacy, and, and Brandon's hitting the nail on the head, you guys. And this is what I want everyone to know because this is what is so difficult, right? I mean, I know we all learn these things differently, we all apply these things differently, but at the end of the day, when you th- when you look at just the foundation. And I want to keep this as simple as possible, and I'm going to tie this into a couple of things. So um, as many of you know, earlier this week, I filed my property tax lawsuit against my county. Um, I am still waiting for proof of service of process. Um, I was told that was done on Wednesday, but here we are Friday. I haven't gotten it back from my process server yet. So um, one of the things that I quoted in that suit, matter of fact, it's the very first line. And I copied and pasted from Article 1, Section 2 of the Utah Constitution, which states all political power is inherent in the people and is in place for their equal protection and benefit. And I'm paraphrasing there. So when you tie things back and when you understand that no statute can supersede that. Nothing that those 300 and something idiots in Congress do that they put onto paper, that they all vote on, that they send to the president, that he signs, that cannot trump any of those because those are natural rights and those rights do not come from Congress. They don't come from a piece of paper. They come from God. But see, what Brandon's talking about is these attorneys, these liars, and even these judges, they don't want to talk about that. And you're going to see that today because we're going to go over a couple of things. So I have up on the screen, for those of you who are watching, this is a document that we filed into this case. Now, I'm going to give a a brief background. I've talked about this before in previous episodes, but I have a friend of mine who, let me give you the background story for where he is and with this case and where it's going. I have a friend of mine who about a year and a half ago, maybe two years now, it's been a while, um, he was attending a Senate committee meeting one that was open to the public for public comment on a, on a piece of proposed legislation. I'm not going to get into the details of the legislation, but let me just talk about it was a hot, contentious topic at the time. I think it still is to a point. Um, there was an individual who was handing out stickers um, that multiple people who were there took, took the stickers and put them on their shirts, their hats, what, whatever else. And the sticker said, vote yes for this proposed bill. So it's a silent show of support for the bill. Well, one of the, this guy here, you can see him up on the screen. His name is Daryl Griggs, and I have no problem outing him out. He was the sergeant at arms, and he took issue with that. So he wanted to show everybody his power and control. And he went around and said, you got to take that sticker off. You got to take that sticker off. Rightfully so, people started pushing back. They said, why? I have a First Amendment right to, to 
to speak my mind. And in this case, I'm not even speaking it verbally. It's no different than if I was to wear a shirt that said, vote for this. You're going to make me take my shirt off? Are you going to force me to leave? So people were asking about it, my buddy, my buddy included. Uh, long story short, they this Daryl Griggs went up and talked to this guy, Daniel McKay, who is a Utah state senator. Uh, Justice, you might know or have heard of him. He's he's a real piece of work, I'll tell you what. Um, but he took issue with it too, and so he issued a order. Now, mind you, he was the he's the chair for this committee meeting and he issued an order that said everybody has to take them off now before going any further brandon erica justice is 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 that a power that we delegated to someone to tell us we the people who again all political power is inherent in us is that a, is that a power we delegated to him to tell us what to do as no, a sir. To our, to our mm -hmm. no no. Okay. So we're clear on them the power to help us uphold our rights. <laughs> what is the sole purpose of government, Brandon? To protect, to protect our rights. Protect individual rights. To, to protect our rights. That's it. They have no other job as it relates to us, to we, the people other than to protect our rights. Okay. I'd like to know how, how someone out of the legislative authority was able to ex uh, executively order someone out of the executive branch. That's a separation of power issue too. It violates the separation of powers. I mean, there's all so you. So again, we're having this discussion. None of us are legal scholars. At least none of us have gone to law school. We don't have a legal degree, and we have all four of us. Well, three of us because Justice is on mute. She's doing things. Um, we have all come to that same conclusion. Now, keep that in the back of your mind as I move forward with what I want to share I, today. I concur. <laughs> I figured you would. <laughs> All right. So let's get to where we are. So what happened was my buddy pushed back, said, I want to know the law. What law am I breaking? They wouldn't tell him. At the end of the day, they arrested him, hauled him out of the meeting. Literally, they hauled him out. Um, it took two or three of his uh, two or three of these state troopers to haul him out of the meeting, issued him a bogus citation. The prosecutor in the case did, uh, filed a motion to dismiss, said, no, we're not going to prosecute this. That's where we are. So we filed suit. We filed suit against all of these people for deprivations of rights under the color of law, right? So you guys have heard us talk about um, there's, a, there's a federal statute it's called Title 42, 1983 that, that allows you a cause of action. Now, again, that's important, too, so keep that in the back of your mind. What we had is we did this. They filed a bogus motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, which is 12B6. So the very first thing we did is we filed this. Now, Brandon, does this say motion on here anywhere? Mm -mm. So this says plaintiff's notice to the court, objection, writ for affidavit of commercial liability. I'm going to read this because it's um, it's it's interesting. Okay, to the honorable judge of the court, and again, I'm reading this for those of you who are listening on our podcast. Um, so, for those of you who are watching, bear with me. Plaintiff files this writ for affidavit and notices this court that plaintiff, acting pro se, objects to counsels for defendants adding to the record anything that is not 
in affidavit form sworn to under the penalty of perjury and with full commercial liability. Plaintiff strongly suggests that the named defendants file counter affidavits rebutting the claims made by the plaintiff in his verified complaint. To date, the only facts that have been submitted in the record have been proffered by the plaintiff, supported by affidavits under the penalties of perjury. The defendant's motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim unsupported by affidavits or depositions is incomplete because it requests this court to consider facts outside the record which have not been presented in the form required by Rules 12b-6 and 56c. Statements of counsel in their briefs or argument while enlightening to the court are not sufficient for purposes of granting a motion to dismiss or summary judgment. Where we are that it is well-settled law that attorneys' statements and arguments do not constitute facts or evidence before the court. The district court recognized this principle when it instructed the jury that statements and arguments of counsel are not evidence in the case. That was from the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, that's the uh, circuit court that we fall under here in Utah. Counsels for the defendants are either attorneys or witnesses, but they cannot be both. Okay, now that's great. In in the attorney's twelve b six motion to dismiss, the attorney makes these statements that the defendant had legislative immunity. Um, that that's the senator. That the, the the defendant troopers had probable cause. That they were entitled to qualified immunity. That they did not arrest the plaintiff. They did not detain the plaintiff, and that the claims, the supervisor claims, should be dismissed. Okay, so now I ask you real quick. I, I want to get to your question, Justice, real okay. quick. Are those facts that are being asserted by the by the attorney? Well, did he cite any? They're not under they they weren't in affidavit form. There you go. So the attorney wrote him on a piece of paper and signed his name to it. And he just said, because he said, this is what it is. This is what it is. Okay? It's like the equivalent of him going, nah, -uh. and yeah. that's it. Brandon, right? Brandon, let me ask you, are those facts that are being asserted by the attorney? Nope. They're not, not they're facts. Not, they're, they're not facts. And so, so let me, let me just clarify. The attorney is attempting to say that they are facts when in reality they are not. That's true. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, no, well, <laughs> here we go again, right? And, and it's it's commonplace. Uh, I think everybody who's got a case moving through will see that the attorneys are going to uh, speak in absolutes. They're going to allege many things, but it is, it is imperative that you always counter uh, they're alleged, uh, alleging uh, with facts on the record, right? There you go. And this is this again. This this brings up uh, one of your uh, appellate reviews, which is a question of fact. Okay, uh, I, just for instance, in one of my cases, uh, the the attorney states that the property that was taken from me from an unreasonable search and seizure is is borderline frivolous, is how you said it where there's, there's no limitation in the Fourth Amendment of what property constitute, constitutes uh, uh, an individual's uh, value of it. There's no limitation there. It could be a piece Old of bubble. Crap. 
I'm, yeah, I'm waving my BS flag right now. You can't see it, but I'm waving it. Yeah. And so uh, this desk jockey is going to tell uh, inform the court that an alligator head stolen from my my um, my back porch by wildlife and fisheries had no intrinsic value, right? Uh, well, there's no limitation there. There's there's he's just speaking off the cuff. Well, you got to yeah. hammer him back, right? And I did, of course. And then then he's he's changed his tactic. But again, they'll always, always, every single time make statements of fact, genuine, genuine, materially false statements. Uh, mm -hmm. So, for example, my last motion against this motion to remand, four materially false statements. Well, they won't catch me again doing this early, but all I do is when I, when I start my, my reply brief is I start off first with every materially false statement. What do I compare that to? Uh, materially false statement one, two, three, and four. Attack, uh, see exhibit H, B, C, D, right? Because mm -hmm. what are my exhibits? They're facts before the case. Yeah, because you supported that with a sworn affidavit. That's right. That's right. And you've got again, your you got your verification of your complaint, right? You got to go and look at the rules of evidence. That's one of their rules, right? <laughs> you're you're okay. I don't want to cut you off, Brandon, but in the interest of time, I, I want people to 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 tie these things together because this is what's important to understand. So I have made it very clear in this objection. The attorney has offered nothing by the way of facts that the court can even consider. Does that make sense? So even though there is a motion to dismiss before the court, nothing that's written in there can be considered by the court because they are not facts that have been properly presented before the court. But do you think these judges care? Nope. Do you guys think they care? Look at my conclusion here. Determination by this court that the defendants have entered nothing on record by testimony, counter affidavits or depositions that the rulings and determinations of the United States Supreme Court have precedent over counsel's opinions and that the motion to dismiss has been filed improperly justly requires that defendant's motion to dismiss be supported by affidavits in order for this court to consider the facts therein. All I'm asking, submit an affidavit. Put your money where your mouth is. Do you think they did that, Erica? Probably not. No, they didn't. Look, I was even nice enough. I wrote out an affidavit for him. <laughs> well, and, and what you have here is a concerted effort uh, by the attorneys and and those the Gestapo agents mm -hmm. and the, the judges uh, to stop. OK. There, so it's risk versus reward. Are it you is. really going to are you really going to see it all the way through? And so when the magistrate rules uh, with your, his, his report and recommendations, the chief judge in the court or the head Article Three court judge uh, signs off of it. So here, here, here's the game and understand this. When they do that, they, they've done a, what's called a judicial act. OK, yep. they have absolute immunity at that at, at that point because it's judicial in nature. Mm -hmm. However, when you have a magistrate ruling on a case that has Article Three standing, it is imperative for you to continually call out the Article Three standing. So, and, and I'll give somebody uh, uh, an example too in one of my cases. So, the magistrate originally uh, was ruling in our case, uh, Miss Miss 
uh, Winehurst. She has stopped. Uh, why? Because she can't rule on Article Three standing issues. And so when we hit back at her, the, the only judge who has ruled is Maurice Hicks. Who Maurice Hicks is going to get burned here in the in the appellate court too, because the cover up is just as bad as the crime. So when the cat gets out the bag, for instance, for your friend here, we know we know these were criminal violations, violated his his First Amendment constitutional right, one freedom, speech, association, and and then his right to attend a public meeting, right? Uh, and that we know for a fact that the edict coming from the uh, the senator or whoever it was was not a lawful order. How can it be a lawful order? It you know, there's no crime being committed. There's no reasonably articulated suspicion of criminal act activity. There's no objective facts that somebody else uh, within that facility was being harmed. Um, so nonetheless, he had his rights violated. Now, this is an abuse of discretion by, by the court. So you have your, your appeal saved, but you have to be willing to go the entire way. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. So going back to what Brandon is talking about, I now have up on the screen the report and recommendation that was issued by this magistrate judge. Her name is Cecilia M. Romero. You guys have probably heard her before. I am no fan of this woman. You guys know that. Um, the Article Three judge on this case is actually the chief district judge, Robert J. Shelby. So what I have noticed, though, is that 99.9% .9 of the time, the, the, the Article Three judge just goes along with whatever the magistrate says. So here's what she said. All right. Now, you guys know the background story of my buddy. You saw our notice and our, we were asking for a commercial writ of, of uh, affidavit. Uh, I'm not going to read this whole document because it's 29 pages long, but there's a lot of things I want to touch on in here. So here's what she says. Having carefully considered the relevant filings, the court finds that oral argument is not necessary and will decide this matter based on the written memorandum. So there's a local rule here. You guys have seen maybe recently Alphonse talking about this. Again, whoever the moving party is, has the right to request an oral argument. Um, so in this case here, the defendants filed a motion to dismiss and they just let it sit there. It was a delay tactic. This order, by the way, was issued eight months, eight months after everything was done on this motion. Just so everybody knows. For the reasons below, the court denies plaintiff's motion for writ and the undersigned recommends that the court grant defendants motion to dismiss. Okay. Now remember, <laughs> Eric has got the hand over her face. Remember, were there any facts lawfully presented before the court from the defendants? No. So what in the world is the court recommending that they grant? There's, there's factually nothing there except for our pleading, which at this point has gone unanswered. We could file a motion for summary judgment, which I was talking to my friend about doing. But long story short, I'm just going to leave that at where it is. Okay. Well, did so, they golf together or something? Like, did they all know each other? Private the conversation thing. that happened behind exactly the this judge. She knows all of the attorneys for the defendants. I guarantee it. They know each other. It's again, it's a good old boys club, and we're not part of it because we're yeah. pro se. Right. That's what it is. Okay, I'm going to scroll down here. I'm going to get past you know the background and everything else here that talks about this, and I'm going to get into the argument section because this. 
this is where your your mind is just gonna blow okay so here number three is where it says discussion plaintiff's official capacity claims against all defendants all right plaintiff brings suit against senator mckay and defendant griggs in both their official and personal capacities alleging that they acted under the authority of the utah state senate a division of the legislative branch of the state of utah plaintiff also brings suit against the uhp troopers in both their official personal capacities, alleging they are employed by UHP, which is a division of the Utah Department of Public Safety, a political subdivision of the executive branch. Then she goes on to cite some interesting things I don't think has any relevance, but whatever. In the Supreme Court case, Kentucky v. Graham, the Supreme Court explained the difference between personal capacity suits and official capacity suits. Personal capacity suits seek to impose personal liability upon a government official for actions he takes under color of state law, whereas official capacity suits against an officer are generally treated as suits against the governmental entity of which the officer is an agent. When a governmental official is sued in both official and individual capacities for acts performed in each capacity, those acts are treated as a transaction of two different legal personages. Remember that. We've talked about this before. An official capacity suit is in all respects other than name to be treated as a suit against the entity. So she says, for this reason, plaintiff's official capacity claims against Senator McKay would be treated as claims against his employer, the state of Utah, which plaintiff did not name as a party in this suit. The same is true for plaintiff's official capacity claims against the officer defendants. According to plaintiff, defendant Griggs was acting as the sergeant at arms on the date of the incident, therefore making his employer the state of Utah. As for the remaining officer defendants, their employer is UHP, or more specifically, the Utah Department of Public Safety, which constitutes an arm of the state of Utah. Thus, plaintiff's official capacity claims against all defendants would have to be brought against the state of Utah, which is not a named party in the suit. Okay, so what's our remedy there, Brandon? Hmm. Where, where, where do you say, what are the courts supposed to do? Liberally construed. Okay. But, but if so, in Louisiana, it's, it's specific, right? So uh, my statutory process here, and I don't know if you have it there. So my statutory process for suing wildlife and fisheries required that I sue the actual state of Louisiana. And it was not vague or ambiguous. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you have that there. That's the only question when I see this. Uh, no, so my, my statutory process, uh, suing the state of Louisiana, I had to file in the 19th JDC and the, the, it, it actually gives me the entire name state of Louisiana dash wildlife and fisheries, right? It tells you exactly yeah. how to sue that agency. So there's, there's no ambiguity there for how I was supposed to do it. Well, and see here in Utah, if you want to sue the state federally, because generally speaking, the state has 11th Amendment immunity, right, from suit against in federal court. But this is why I talk about read your state's Administrative Procedures Act, because as long as they are given notice ahead of time and an opportunity to cure ahead of time, they cannot come back and claim 11th Amendment immunity. So let me give you an example of that. So in my property tax suit, I didn't have to do this. I could have just gone straight and filed my suit. 
but I went ahead and gave them 60 days opportunity to file a written statement with me, letting me know, hey, we received your claim. We're not going to pay it or we're going to pay it or this is what we're going to do. I got zero, zip, zero, zilch, got nothing, nada, right? Going back to the three amigos, do you know what nada means? Yeah, I got nothing, okay? <laughs> so I had, according to the statutes, they had 60 days. 60 days came and passed. So now I have a right to file suit. So they cannot come back and claim immunity. Now I'm gar I guarantee you the stupid attorney is going to try. They're going to be dumb enough to try, but so. I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. So is what she's saying in a nutshell, I know the suit was filed against their personal and professional capacities, right? Mm -hmm. So she's saying in a nutshell because she, because this person was uh, under their title of their job at the time that their personal capacity is um, under immunity and can't be sued. Is that what she's saying in a nutshell? She's just sort. saying you forgot you forgot to list somebody on the complaint. Basically what it is, yes, is so right here where she says, as a result, the undersigned recommends that plaintiff's official capacity claims against all defendants be dismissed without prejudice for failure to state a claim. What she should have said, as a result, the undersigned recommends that plaintiff be allowed to amend his complaint to add the state as a defendant if plaintiff so chooses. Right. Otherwise. Hey, and they have claims, to educate you. Exactly. Otherwise, these claims should be dismissed without prejudice for failure to state a claim. Okay? That's so, what she's saying. And let's, let's get this too, because this is the importance of reading the statutory process. If people will go pull up uh, my United States Marshals uh, in the federal judge complaint, uh, and read the capacities within uh, that are listed. Uh, so there's a couple capacities there that people are going to see with a federal judge there, and it's only the only listing is the individual capacity. Okay, for why did we do that? Because if I listed, as we saw up above, the official and individual capacity, if you list, list both of them, they're going to claim it as the same entity. However, when you go just individual, what you are claiming, what you what you are claiming, is malfeasance, misfeasance, or nonfeasance of office. Okay, that the uh, the office itself did not create uh, the cause of action, and uh, especially if you apply that next to the Ku Klux Klan Act of eighteen seventy one, which is is your act to keep uh, ideologues and uh, political hyperpolarized uh, idiots. Uh, who are following the COVID-19 nonsense and, and a plethora of other ideas. Uh, that's what you're attaching it to. And the only way that I could get the federal judge in any way, shape, or capacity is only in her individual capacity. Yeah. Yeah, and that's important to know. Like, if you guys have an issue with a judge, which we're all going to have issues with, especially since when, like, like Brandon talked about earlier, making a ruling on this motion, that's a judicial act. But moving forward, absent of any jurisdiction, like, for example, if, the, if a magistrate judge issues a ruling on something they have no jurisdiction over to do, well, now they can be held personally liable and individually liable. So you would sue them individually. So, so there's, two, there's, there's two essential elements. Let, let's not leave, uh, leave that behind. If you have not read the 1789 Judiciary Act, I advise everybody to start digging into it. Um, but there's two essential elements to that. They have to make a, uh, a decision absent of all jurisdiction. 
Yep. And the other one is that there must be legal consequences. Okay. So what's, what's legal consequences mean? That means you're actively involved in a case and subject matter, in personam, territorial, or in rem jurisdiction has standing has already been established and the judge has the authority to act on the case. So, uh, and this give a prime example, uh, administrative orders from uh, a judiciary officer that restricted access to a courtroom. That is not a judicial act. No, that is, is an administrative act, and therefore she lacks, they, they lack jurisdiction and they lack legal consequences. Yep, yep, good point. So <clears throat> let's talk a little bit more about this magistrate judge's review of the case and what she's talked, what she says here. You, you guys, bear, I hate using the term bear with me, but just as I'm reading through this, I apologize if your head wants to explode. I mean, I know Erica, somebody is just saying Erica is hilarious, like right here, this uh, jar <laughs> proprietor. <laughs> I'm just involuntarily responding to the ridiculousness of this. Yeah. I, well, I mean, again, because you have common sense, right? And you have to understand that a lot of, and I'm not saying that this magistrate judge doesn't have common sense. I'm just saying she has been in this world because she was a practicing attorney for I don't know how many years before she became a judge. So all she knows is what she did. And what she did is what the defendant's counsel did. It's nothing has changed. So when we're bringing these things to light in these cases, she's like, I've never heard of that before. I don't know what, what they're talking about. You don't have to support a motion to dismiss with an affidavit. Get out of here. Isn't it her job to find the truth before making a ruling? It is. It is. But you're going to see here, um, I took a different approach on my property tax suit. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But you're going to see here why I did and, and what's going on. So let's go back here. So now she goes into, all right, so she says, moving forward, the court's only going to consider the personal capacity claims or the individual capacity claims. All right, claims against Senator McKay. She says, plaintiff asserts that because he failed to train, supervise, and or oversee the officer defendants, that he violated plaintiff's right rights protected by the 4th, 1st, 5th, 6th, and 14th Amendments. Defendants argue that all claims must be dismissed because the doctrine of legislative immunity acts as an absolute bar. <laughs> and plaintiff has failed to allege any facts that Senator McKay is actually the supervisor for any of the defendants. Well, and, and let's pinpoint this uh, because we're going to go back to, to what I was discussing earlier about why you want to enter equal protection in all your cases if you can. And what this yep. is going to kick off is your 14th Amendment. And so this, this has to do with declaratory and injunctive relief. Okay, let's let's bring this back in. Let's say the absolute bar does apply to the legis uh, to this senator or whatever. But what you have, what has to be done when you enter in the equal protection uh, clauses of the Fourteenth Amendment is now uh, standards of review. Uh, you have your rational basis review of the edict. You have your intermediate uh, review of the edict, and then you have your constitutional standard, which is your strict scrutiny standard. And I would suppose uh, that this is what needed to be here for this, this legend. So what you have here, first off, uh, you've got a separation of the checks powers, uh, separation yep. of checks and balances. 
Two, you have an executive officer taking an edict from the legislature and enacting uh, 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 unreasonable search and seizure. So I would have yeah. actually entered in some type of declaratory and injunctive relief against against this legislature, get, getting an edict from the court that this is a violation. We did that. Oh, wow. We okay. did that. Just hold that, that thought there, Brandon, because I'm going to read something here that's going to make your mind blow. Okay. <laughs> Before you move forward, can you explain what the absolute bar is? Yeah. I'm sure I'm not so, the only one that doesn't know. So there is you're going to see stuff all the time about the doctrine of this, the doctrine of that. Like there's the doctrine of qualified immunity, the doctrine of legislative immunity, the doctrine of judicial immunity. Basically what it is, is it's the Supreme court or other courts have determined what that means. <laughs> That's all it is. So the absolute so, decision. Doctrine, so the doctrine of legislative immunity protects a legislature from suit, but only applies to actions taken while they're actively involved in legislating. Now, I found one of the cases that I found in our reply brief to their motion to dismiss was that it protects them in everything except arbitrary and commission, capricious commands that do not affect the public on the whole. Okay, so what does that mean? What that means is a legislature cannot tell a group of people to take off a sticker because it would only apply to the people in that room and not to everyone in the state. Does that make sense? Total. But look what this idiot says, okay? To establish personal liability in a 1983 action, it is enough to show that the official acting under color of state law caused the deprivation of a federal right. Now, by the way, there are no such things as federal rights, right. federally protected rights. Right. Get it through your freaking heads, people. And when I say people, I mean these stupid judges. Get it through your freaking head. That's and didn't you just say she didn't have common sense? Major typo. Like if she... she uh-huh. As for available defenses, an official in a personal capacity action may, depending on his position, be able to assert personal immunity defenses such as legislative immunity. State and regional legislatures are entitled to absolute immunity from liability under 1983 for their legislative activities. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Well, well there it is. This was not okay. a legislative activity. <laughs> Now, now, what did what did Brandon say about equity, making sure you ask for declaratory injunctive relief? Oh, my gosh. Did you know we pled that? And look what this yeah. moron had to say. Because the court here, this is, by the way, this is a footnote. She doesn't even put it in the briefing. She puts it as a footnote. Because the court will only be addressing plaintiff's personal capacity claims, plaintiff's requests for declaratory and injunctive relief against defendants are also subject to dismissal. No, they are not. No, not. Sorry, I'm getting really angry here. She it, says, it, now, now, now let's, let's pull that up. What is that? I, I she got, says, I got to go 1983, a plaintiff cannot sue an official in their personal capacity for injunctive or declaratory relief. Bull crap. <laughs> that why she put it in the fine print, thinking maybe it wouldn't. Hold on, hold on. Don't, don't move. San Juan. 41F4. You're looking at this this case, Chilcote v. San Juan County? 
Yep. Okay, while you're looking that up, I'm going to keep reading, Brandon. She says, absolute legislative immunity attaches to all actions taken in the sphere of legitimate legislative activity. The doctrine of legislative immunity enables officials to serve the public without fear of personal liability, blah, 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 blah. Does she bother to say what legitimate legislative activity uh -huh. is? No. She says the Tenth Circuit has followed the Supreme Court's broad view of legislative immunity, where she says in this case, the Tenth Circuit refused to grant legislative immunity to a county board of commissioners who banned the plaintiff from speaking at all future meetings. The Tenth found the board's actions were not related to any legislation or legislative function. Isn't that exactly the case that I just put here? It's like exactly the exact case, except it's sticky. Says, now, here's how she turns this around. Unlike the board in Campling, Senator McKay's actions to maintain order during the legislative meeting related to legislation and a legislative function, given that the purpose of the meeting was to listen to debate about a proposed bill. And as plaintiff asserts in the amended complaint, it was Senator McKay's duty to ensure the integrity of the standing committee process by enforcing legislative rules and parliamentary procedure without delay. Guess what? His order to remove a sticker that's protected under the First Amendment did not fall under rules a and procedure or a parliamentary procedure. Yep. So that quote, that quote from uh, yeah. that lady uh, yeah. is not in this, uh, is not in here. So under Chilcote v. San Juan County, uh -uh. it's not 40, there. 41, uh, 41, 41F.4196. This is the 10th Circuit in 2022. So she quoted prosecutorial uh, immunity. <laughs> See, and, 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 and look, guys, this is why you have to go check. So I, I, I am. Even you know, judges, guys, you have to check these. Good eye, Brandon. Good eye. <laughs> um, and, and I'll bring everybody up to speed here why every case law must be read. Uh, we've caught two United States attorneys. Uh, not only changing canons of construction within uh, quotes of case law, but also quoting case law that has not one order on the record because uh, the order, the entire case law, the case was dismissed for failure to pay. Now, let me back up there. Yes. The entire case never moved past uh, the payment stage. The, uh, a pro se uh, litigant, in prison uh, was not allowed to go forward because failure failure to pay. And I can't remember the actual name. And of it, it, they never litigated his claims is what Brandon never, said. Never litigated his claims, but yet a United States attorney was quoting the this case as having precedent. This is this is vitally important. So right here, I'm in this case, and prosecutors are entitled to absolute immunity for their decisions. Um, and here we, here we go again. Prosecutor is absolutely immune when functioning within the scope of his duties and in initiating and pursuing criminal prosecution. And it's over and over. So I control F, right? She said legislative, right? So let's go th go to the only uh, piece, uh, two comments of legislative in here. Here, the county commission is both the legislative and executive body. So we're actually talking about a municipality here. And no one has ever doubted, for instance, that a municipality may be liable under 1983 for a single decision by its properly constituted legislative body. The only yep. two, the only two instances in this entire order from the Tenth Circuit 
uh, 41 uh, F4 1196 that mentions le legislative. Yeah. I so, wonder if you put it in a footnote. It was a total stretch. She was hoping you wouldn't catch it or something. Yeah. That's, and that's why it's not in the body of the document. Right. That's right. That's why she put, because she's not, again, she may be clueless, but she's not an idiot. And that's why no. it took her eight months so that she could find that super obscure thing and then twist it a little bit to try to trick mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And so, and this gets back to what I'm talking about. So th this, this is, so you can actually, you'll have the de novo standard here also. So you're going to have the de novo standard. So your standard of review to the appellate court, de novo, uh, questions of fact, and, and then abuse of discretion. You'll have all three. So <clears throat> these judges are supposed to be held to the highest standards because they're the ones that make the decisions on people's lives. Correct. So Correct. what recourse is there to um, hold her to the standard or, you know, combat that she acted um, ignorantly with? Well, remember, so, we'll, go back, we'll go back to the beginning in, in the opening statement that I had. We are fighting on ideological grounds. Right. They are protecting their own conscience. Uh, and, and this month, nothing, absolutely nothing presented to you and any of their citations, any of their any of their conclusions or any of their novel uh, legal theories should be accepted. You must chat. You must read through it all. And I guarantee you, if you are diligent and you actually go through every damn thing they list, you're going to find uh, many things just like what this claim here. And, and, and uh, James is right. There's a reason she put it in the footnotes and she added hypotheses, right? Because yeah. that wasn't, that's an addition to the text. Well, that's let's go back to our grammar rules, right? That's she true. added to the text. That's not fact. It's not precedent. It's her freaking opinion, which carries about as much water as a whole, as a cup that has 50 holes in it. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what that means. This is <clears throat> not wrong. So, Justice, to answer your question, or was it Erica? What is our recourse here? Me, the yeah. rules. The rules stipulate we have 14 days to file an objection to the magistrate's recommendation, report and recommendation. We have to cite with particularity all of the problems with this report. Now, I've already found four that I could cite. We should be given an opportunity to amend. Um, the magistrate judge has falsely assumed that they have these immunities when they bring out when the law states otherwise, all of these things. Okay. Um, and I'm not even done with the document here, you guys, <laughs> but you're going to see, this is exactly the, the madness that this here. And, and why do you think it is that these magistrate judges and not even just the magistrate judges, even, even these district judges, why do they scrutinize pro se pleadings like they do? And, and the re the answer is actually very simple. And it goes back to um, something you guys may have all heard before. But there is nothing that an attorney, and I would dare say the court, fears more than a well-educated pro se litigant. Because yeah. they know they can hold their feet to the fire. They know they can do like what Brandon is doing and potentially getting a case to the United States Supreme Court. I mean, yep. Do you know how unprecedented that is that you can get an individual who can actually articulate the law 
and be able to move the case and show the errors of every single court below it. I mean, we're finally starting to see things turning around the way they should at, at, at some of these courts of appeals, but definitely at the Supreme Court, even with morons like conduct, with Jackson Brown on the bench. She couldn't even tie her shoes without help. So I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just... I don't mean that, you guys. Please don't. No, you're right. James, every single time they're responding to these things, they're just keeping their fingers crossed. Like, I hope yeah. they don't. I hope they don't catch me. I hope they don't. Right. No, right. I don't totally. Or, have to know what I'm talking about, and that yeah. I really screwed that up. Well, and, and you're going to see. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Justice. Uh, or, or put these things in there to just continue the the rabbit tail chase. Yeah. And stretch yeah. it out. Stretch. If you find it, then it just you know delays it more and delays it more. Yeah, they don't they don't want again, they don't want to disrupt the status quo. Remember, like I said, this magistrate judge, she was a practicing attorney for I don't know how many years before she became a judge. This is all she knows. This is all she knows how to do. And you're going to see why um again, I keep going back to my property tax suit. I'm going to bring that up on the screen here in a little bit and show you why I chose to go in a different direction, but you're going to see. Okay? Let's talk about this. She says Plaintiff's 1983 claims. This is Title 42, 1983, right? Which is, gives you an option to sue for a deprivation of a federally protected right. She says that plaintiff asserts that the officer defendants violated his right to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures protected by and guaranteed by the Fourth Amendment, which is correct, when they falsely arrested him without probable cause. Defendants argue that plaintiff's false arrest claim should be dismissed because it fails both prongs of the qualified immunity standard. Now, remember, did defendants submit any affidavits in support of their motion to dismiss? No. So this line right here shouldn't even be here. Can't even consider it, but she did it anyway. The court begins by addressing the first prong of qualified immunity analysis. Again, can't consider it because they're dead, they're, they're freaking out. They're, the motion to dismiss <laughs> Had no affidavits, but she's just kicking that under the can like it doesn't matter. So is she acting with judicial immunity at this point or is she just going off under the rails? I would dare say I would make the argument she's gone off the freaking rails. But let's read it anyway. Under the first prong, plaintiff must sufficiently plead that the officer defendants violated his federal statutory or constitutional right. Okay, again, my head is going to explode. Erica, help me out here. I thought you did a pretty good we job there. We do not have constitutional rights, people. Okay, got that off my chest. Oh, I feel so much better. We don't have constitutional rights. We never did. Constitutionally secured rights. Constitutionally secured, constitutionally protected, whatever you want to call them. We Maybe do she not really doesn't know because that's twice now that she's like... I am willing to bet that if you go up, if you find her on the street and you say, hey, what form of government do we have here in the United States? She'd come back and say a democracy. Yeah. 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 Challenger, that's my school. Anyway. It just goes to show you how political even getting into office is, because if she is yeah. this ignorant, how did she become a judge? Right. If she can't yeah. even do the law properly. Well, again, magistrate judges are not appointed by the president. They're appointed by the other judges on the courts. And so, again, the other judges have interaction with attorneys. They're like, hey, we like this attorney. Let's nominate them as a magistrate judge. And there you go. That's how they get it. Big club. Yep. Okay. So moving on, 
Plaintiff asserts that the officer defendants violated his rights under the Fourth Amendment because they arrested him without probable cause. The Fourth Amendment guarantees the right of the people to be secure in the person's blah, 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 blah. An arrest without probable cause that a crime has been committed violates the Fourth Amendment. Duh. That said, when an officer has probable cause to believe a person committed even a minor crime in his presence, the arrest is constitutionally reasonable. Okay. Probable cause requires reasonable, trustworthy information that would lead a reasonable officer to believe that the person about to be arrested has committed or is about to commit a crime. Okay, I don't have any argument with any of that. Right. The subjective mindset of the arresting officer does not matter. Rather, we ask whether whether the totality of the circumstances viewed objectively justifies the arrest. For the following reasons, the court finds that plaintiff has not sufficiently pled that the officer defendants violated his Fourth Amendment rights. Okay, I'm going to stop right there sure. because there is there is a constitutionally protected provision in every state constitution that if an arrest is made without a warrant, what must happen, Brandon? Affidavit of probable cause. Okay, affidavit of probable cause. Where must the arrestee be taken? Immediately and without a Immediately. To a magistrate. The magistrate would determine whether that officer had probable cause to affect the arrest. Correct? Correct. Well, and what I don't understand about this particular case right here, uh, that it was charged correctly. And then the, the prosecution uh, motion to dismiss it out right there. Yeah, that that evidence right there, the motion to dismiss by the, uh, the uh, prosecuting uh, attorney is facts before the court that he was unreasonably searched and seized and had a, a, an arrest that was not based on objective facts that would lead, lead to a, a suspicion of criminal activity. So the facts are already within the case. Yeah, it already stands as truth and fact before the court, right? At that point. Right? Yes. yes. Again, yes. you guys, I mean, it, that's why I'm saying it, it makes your head explode when you read this. I mean, it gets even worse, okay? She says, as alleged in the amended complaint, plaintiff was arrested and issued a citation for disrupting a public meeting as prohibited by Utah Code Annotated. Yeah. 7696103, which states a person violates this section if intending to prevent, if intending to prevent or disrupt a lawful meeting, he obstructs or interferes with the meeting. The cop did that. You have to prove intent, just like you would. You right? do. Right. It's, she says, the allegations in the amended complaint indicate that the plaintiff refused to take off his sticker, stickers. Uh, that's not true. He did. He took them off. We never said he didn't. He took them off. Even after being told repeatedly that the removal of the stickers was necessary based on the rules and procedures of the meeting. Okay, again, there were no rules or procedures of the meeting that governed that they had to retake the stickers off. And we've made that very clear in our amended complaint. Just make stuff up. She's, she goes on, McKay made it clear to everyone, including the plaintiff, that demonst any demonstrations of how one feels about the bill were not allowed, stickers included. Again, that's, that's not a, an authority that McKay has. He can say whatever. Matter of fact, I have him on video saying you can flip off the chair if you want, but you just can't flip off the other members of the committee. So it's okay for me to flip off the chair, but I can't wear a sticker in silent support for a bill. Makes a lot of sense. Um, 
She says McKay proceeded to put the meeting in recess because there were individuals in the audience, including plaintiff, who were not following the rules. She then states, plaintiff admits that the rule being referenced is 76-9103. No, no, I did not. That's not the rule I'm talking about. Um, it's Utah legislative rule, which prohibits signage and banners in the house gallery only. Okay, so you guys know what the house gallery is? That's like where the Utah House of Representatives or any state's House of Representatives, there's a gallery that you can watch. You can't angle signs up there to have people vote for what you want. Right. But did I say we were, or, or did, did the amended complaint ever say we were in the House gallery? No. No. We were in a committee meeting, in a closed committee meeting. The rule, there is no rule that prohibits anything of the sort in a committee meeting. He just made it up off the off his cuff, okay? And I have it on video, evidence that we submitted that the defendant officer says, whatever the chair says is as good as law. Really? Uh. <laughs> yes. Uh. If you go back and look at the complaint, I've got um, links to all the videos on a public website. You can watch them and you can see, yeah, whatever the chair says that has the full force and effect is law. Oh, okay. So we are now living under a tyrannical total government. tyranny. They just this get to make not a republic. This is no longer a republic. Crazy. Right? Okay. So she cites the wrong rule. This is the Utah criminal code of disrupting a meeting. This is not the rule that prohibits anything because there isn't one. She said, then says plaintiff Griggs asked plaintiff to comply. Plaintiff gave defendant Griggs one of the stickers. Wait a minute. I thought she said he, he refused to take them off. <laughs> confused. Plaintiff gave Griggs one of the stickers stating he wanted to keep the other, but he would turn it over, i.e. make it not visible. What's wrong with that? Plaintiff then asked if it was true that whatever the committee chair says was the same as law. There's where, where it is. To which defendant Griggs replied, if you want to argue with me, I'm going to have you come out. So there's he doesn't give an, an answer. Plaintiff replied by saying he just wanted to know what the law he was violating. He has a right to know that, right? Plaintiff then questioned defendant Griggs about a Ukrainian flag that was on his lapel. Plaintiff alleges. Ideologues, and you find it, you find mm -hmm. it everywhere. You're challenging mm -hmm. their ideology. And, Plaintiff, and this is alleges, <laughs> Plaintiff alleges that defendant Griggs appeared to take issue with this questioning and eventually motioned to one of the defendant troopers to have him hauled out of there. That's where it became the pissing war. Right, yep. there, right. Plaintiff was then told he had disrupted the meeting and his and his could choose to be arrested or leave on his own accord. Plaintiff did not leave, but continued to assert that he complied by putting the stickers away and by the and and oh and maybe it says right here. Nope. By the way, he also asserted that the meeting was in recess, so there was no meeting that he could have disrupted. So interesting. How do you um, disrupt a meeting that's in recess? Can you file assault charges as well? Um, we did actually. He did file criminal complaints, certified verified criminal complaints. But guess what? They fall on deaf ears. Yeah. At this point, plaintiff was informed he was under arrest and then forcibly removed from the meeting. From the meeting, for plaintiffs to state a, place, a plausible claim under the Fourth Amendment, he must allege facts from which the court may reasonably infer the officer defendants lacked probable cause. I just told you how they lacked probable cause. Because they never took him before a magistrate for, for an affidavit of probable cause or for a determination of probable cause. 
So just because you, magistrate judge, based on what I wrote in my complaint, say they have a rebuttal, no, they do not. Furthermore, there are no facts from the defendants to counter any of the facts that I put before the court. And just, just for you to know in the private chat, James, uh, I don't know if y'all can transfer that, but that all that right there is from the case law that she quoted, Boucher 2020 Westlaw 6899496. And that substantiates okay. what, what we just said about the affidavit of a probable cause and what is needed to not violate the Fourth Amendment. But that's yeah. from the case law that she quoted, by the way, that she omitted these facts. Yeah. I just want to show, and, and, and look, and I'm just showing people that they will cherry pick what they want from case law and skip over uh, the the empirical evidence within that particular case law, right? You have to be diligent in when, you, when you're going through what they're quoting because they will, they are fork tongue liars mm -hmm. and they are critical. They are critical yeah. theorists taught in Marxian theology, uh, theological schools and they, they despise the rule of law. Yep. Despise it. Yep. So again, all, really all of these things were... within the Republic. Like, exactly. This, they really, this is... they really aren't. This is, they're pretending. And then when we try to bring up points of being like, hey, this is what it's supposed to be like, they're like, hmm. Yeah, you, you, no. you just have to know and understand you're, you're, you're fighting a two front battle when you bring cases into any, I, I would dare say any court right now. It's not just federal court, it's any court. You're fighting a two, a two front battle. You're fighting the battle against your adversary and whatever crooked attorney they have. And you're fighting a battle against the judge because they're of the well, same mindset. And we'll get back into this, just one point on this too. Remember, you're, you're, you're fighting up against snobs too. And what do I mean by that? These intellectual self-proclaimed uh, enlightened ones of the bar and everything else. They're protecting something too. And you, you must recognize that self-interest uh, is always, always part of the equation here. Remember, you're knocking on the door as a pro se. And when you come knocking on that door and you're not pushing birth certificates or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. secret trust and things of that nature, you actually intend uh, to use the rule of law and the uh, rules of civil procedure and the rules of evidence moving forward. Just understand you are engaging into their personal space and they don't like it. Remember, this is, this is supposed to be hidden knowledge. We've, uh, they've c captured the bar association uh, through critical legal theory. And now, now here comes uh, Johnny six pack and uh, Susie Tutu up into the, their courts, right? And that's what they think they are. They think they're their courts and they're not, they're ours. Yeah. You're, you're going to see again how, I mean, how asinine this um, analysis of, of the complaint is and, and her conclusions of that. Because again, the facts show they did not have probable cause because guess what? I cited in the complaint the Utah statute that requires when an officer makes an arrest without a warrant, they are to be taken without unnecessary delay to the nearest magistrate. I cited that in the amended complaint. Guess what she never makes any mention of? Doesn't make any mention of that fact. Okay. Matter of fact, she just she pours um she pours gasoline on it and intends to just 
lighted on fire because she says right here, plaintiff's allegation that the officer defendants violated his Fourth Amendment rights by falsely arresting him without probable cause is a conclusory statement. She would be correct if that's all we said. But we didn't say that. We said that they failed to do their duty as is required by the law that they're required to follow. Well, that's a well. Look in, read that sentence again, James, and see if you can uh, uh, pick out the fork tongue speak. She starts it off plaintiff's allegation, okay, and then she ends with a conclusory uh, conclusory statement. No, conclusory when you statement. Ale when you allege something, guess what you've done? You've alleged that this happens. That's why we have the discovery process. So it's not a conclusory statement. This is. This is asinine that she would even write that. I know. She says, <laughs> consequently, the court disregards this statement and looks to the remaining actual allegations to determine if plaintiffs stated a plausible claim. Disregarding these conclusory statements and looking into the remaining factual allegation, the court finds the plaintiff has failed to nudge his Fourth Amendment claim across the line from conceivable or speculative to plausible. The facts as alleged in the complaint would lead a reasonable officer to believe that plaintiff was committing or had committed a crime during the meeting. What? What? Crime. Yeah. I am sorry. I'm getting very emotional reading. No, this. no, no. I'm with you. I'm with you. This is if, crazy. If, if I was in court, I would be under arrest for contempt of court right now because I just might, you know, I go back to that scene from Billy Madison where the guy was like, you know, those incoherent and rambling statements, we are all now dumber for having heard it. That's where I feel like this is going. Hey, this she is says, more specifically, acts as alleged by plaintiff would lead a reasonable officer to believe that plaintiff was obstructing or interfering with the meeting in violation of this code by wearing the stickers, refusing to take off the stickers, and insistently demanding to be told what law he was breaking. Do we not have a right to know what law we are breaking? We absolutely do. Yes, we do. The amended complaint also fails under the second prong of qualified immunity analysis. By the way, just, just a little footnote here. The Supreme Court has succinctly stated that a motion to dismiss is the wrong document to assert qualified immunity because it requires discovery. Yep. Just so you guys know. Under the second prong, plaintiff must plead sufficient facts to show that the unlawfulness of the officer's conduct was clearly established at the time. Okay, I don't even want to read that because it's it's just gonna. Make well, it, it 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 it's look, look it, it, this 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 report and recommendation is just as bad as Gary's, where we ended up at uh, fifty one hundred words uh, or thereabout in blatant uh, blatant uh, blatant abuse of discretion by the magistrate judge in their report and recommendation, and it's the same thing that. It's the yeah. same thing. So this judge knows as a magistrate uh, that she doesn't have judicial capacity, but she can put this garbage out there, right? Yeah. yeah. She can put this garbage out there and act as if uh, she's actually followed any of the processes. And she has not. Uh, it's, this, is, this is egregious. <laughs> this is very bad. It, I mean, can you believe this? Can you? I mean, and it gets worse. Okay, and, and, and for the sake of time, I mean, we're coming up on an hour and a half. I don't want to go through all of this, but I, I did post this in the Affidavits 101 chat group. It's in Alphonse's group. Um, guys, go look at it and read it. I mean, you, this is what we're up against. Um, 
so yeah so again there is a little footnote here and i'm sorry i'm scrolling through this pretty quick there's a footnote right here where she says the plaintiff's charges were dropped and never adjudicated is oh she says that plaintiff's charges were dropped and never adjudicated is not evidence that the officer defendants violated the fourth amendment <laughs> it actually is then what the hell is it <laughs> uh, uh, at this stage of litigation the question is not if plaintiff actually committed a crime the question is if an objectively reasonable officer would have sufficient reason to believe that plaintiff was committing or had committed a crime guess guess what i have on recording i have one of the officers saying uh why did we arrest this guy was it because of his shirt it's because he was wearing a we the people shirt what did we arrest him for they I didn't have evidence of them talking what they're going to charge him with. So do you mean to tell me that someone can slap handcuffs on someone, haul them off to a room, keep them there for 45 minutes while you two determine which law applies? And you want to tell me you had probable cause to affect that arrest? Yeah, it was objectively reasonable that the officer had sufficient evidence that he had yeah. committed a crime. Yeah, what it's, crime, it's what crime was it again? Exactly. Hey, what did we arrest this guy for? I don't remember. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip through some of these other things here. The second claim is the first and fourteenth amendments. Um, again, I, I just I'm I'm getting to the point where my head's gonna explode if I keep going further. Um, well, it's not gonna get better, and and and, and no. I'll explain. Uh, it, this is. So either somebody is going to uh, do the real findings of fact and conclusions of law correctly uh, by uh, originalist and textualist ways, or you're going to get this. So yeah. people, this is novel legal theories. Uh, this, is what this, this, this is what this is. This is critical legal theory, and it's Marxian in its thought processes, right? And and. And when I say that, I, I don't mean it emptily. You have you have to understand that this this woman, uh, or even a man in instance, have gone to higher education within the last twenty to thirty years. Probably they've been and indoctrinated. They've been indoctrinated. And they think it is their duty to protect the executive branch, um, and also make excuses for their own ideological choices. So, if I had to guess. If I were a betting man, I would say this woman is a uh, branch Covidian. I'm going to tell you, if you go find it, you're going to see her walking around with mask and probably on Twitter or somewhere else, somewhere else, happily with her vaccine patch. She has a duty to protect her brothers and sisters who <laughs> are right. part That's of right. it. Comrade! <laughs> That's I mean, I'm, I'm making a joke, you guys, but my gosh, every every single day that goes by, it, it never ceases to amaze me how how close how how closer we're getting to what Mother Russia was, or mm. or what, I mean, this is what blows your mind when you have the leader of a former communist nation making more sense than a leader of a, a supposed republic. That's what blows your mind. They'll tell you it's so, a democracy. They, they're not even lying about it anymore. They're not even no. trying to pretend that it's the republic anymore. Yeah. So, so it, it, this, this is what I'm, this is what I wanted to talk to you guys about was this is what we're up against. And what frustrates me at the federal court is it's more paperwork. I shouldn't have to reply to this nonsense, 
But guess what? If I don't reply to it, I can't object to it. And if I don't object to it, I can't appeal it. That's how asinine this is. So now you have to spend the time to write up a reply to point out all of the errors and mistakes that they made just so that the district judge can say, oh, that's great, but we're still going to dismiss the case anyway. Because again, they're they're this they're they're basically they're basically saying, um, call us out on it. Well, and what I would do, James, and just to make sure that you do it, like I, I was pulling up these case laws as as you were going through them, yeah. I would use the exact same ones, but in full context. Okay, yeah. And I would yeah. go through there, and make my memorandum. Uh, magistrate quoted this case, but she conveniently left out the actual uh, elements needed, right? And over and over again, that's what we've done every time. And yes, this, it's an attempt to wear out the saints. Folks, we're not going to make, I'm not going to make any excuses. We are in dire straits in that for 60 some odd years, the American public has been asleep at the wheel. And guess what has happened? The tyrants and ideologues have taken over. That's just the, that's the truth. You're not going to jump right through all these hoops. But if you use morals and uh, uh, values and don't dissuade from your principles, at the end of the day, everything's yep. going to be okay. Yep. So I was making hints at, you know, my property tax suit that I just filed. And I said I was choosing to take a different direction because, and I talked to Brandon about this um, earlier this week. Because I've been doing a lot of research and finding some interesting um, rulings surrounding these things. And what I had noticed was litigants, not only pro se, but just litigants in general, that are moving under a statutory cause of action, meaning Title 42-1983 or any other type of act of Congress, inadvertently waive constitutionally guarantees by choosing to do that. And they probably didn't even know it. So as I was looking at my suit, I sat back and I thought, okay, I wonder if there's a different approach that I can take. One where I just essentially pull that rug right out from underneath them at the very beginning, as opposed to going through all the song and dance. So when I filed my suit, I actually have this suit written up in two copies. I have one where it's very similar to the one that Alphonse filed, where I have Title 42, 1983, um, all these other statutes I'm moving under. And then I have this a suit at common law for compensatory damages, injunctive and declaratory relief, and demand for trial by jury. Now, I there is no common law injunctive or declaratory relief. That is codified in statutory law, which is right here, 28 U.S.C. 2202. But guess what? Causes of action under that statute cannot be dismissed for for stating failure to state a claim for which relief can be granted. That's right. I don't, I don't care what that stupid magistrate said. So I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring this suit for deprivations of constitutionally secured rights. Again, I got it right. But she didn't. Under color of authority and color of law, under authority of the Seventh Amendment to United States Constitution and Article One, Section 11 of the Utah Constitution, which is basically the equivalent of my Utah Constitution to the Seventh Amendment. And then I talked about what I said before. Whereas all political power is inherent in the people and all free governments are founded on their 
her authority for their equal protection and benefit. I bring one of these, I, I said, you know, one of the sovereign people, the Union State of Utah, brings this verified suit at common law under authority of the Seventh Amendment. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop sharing this because, again, I posted this in the group. You guys cannot read it. But you know what I find is interesting? Not even, let's see, not even three hours after I filed this suit, I got an order from the court. And you know what that order was? Let me uh, pull it up here in my email because I don't want to cite it incorrectly. It was, where is it? This one? It was an order to propose a schedule. Brandon, have you ever gotten one of those orders in any of your cases? Yep. 26F, right? Yep. Yep. What's interesting is of the other four cases that I've been involved with, never got one of those orders. Nothing ever happened. Yeah, we, we, we've gotten it in two of them. However, um, <laughs> the attorneys uh, fight the actual scheduling conference. We've gone to one. And uh, this, so, uh, again, let me tell people. So I've got motions to dismiss everywhere. They're just sitting there, right? The, uh, mm -hmm. and the opposing counsel has failed to litigate it. One of the uh, one of the twenty six Fs were motion to stay by the judge. That's going to be Daniel Daniel Jordan, who is motion to stay all discovery. And we're just sitting here for five months. What can we do, folks? So, now, a matter of fact, Gary got his uh, on the original uh, city of city of Central. As soon as it was filed, the first thing that was filed into the case was the twenty six F. Yeah. Yep. So. And I'm just reading between the lines here. Um, and, and what I'm getting, and maybe maybe my assertion of this is way off in left field. And if it is, Brandon, go ahead and tell me. But my, my interpretation of that is that the judge has at least read the complaint or looked through it and said, this guy's got a claim for relief. I'm going to nip this in the butt right now. I'm going to make these parties get a scheduling order put together. Um, so this isn't being dragged along unnecessarily. That's just what I read from that. Doesn't mean you're not still going to get a motion to dismiss. Because again, that's what all of these stupid attorneys do. Throw crap up against the wall and hope it sticks. But well, it's and, our and, job. And so what you Another thing that's going to happen, too, is when you start initial discovery and you try to have this conference, right, and you try to uh, initiate discovery. Discovery is literally where ca these cases are going to die, folks, every single one of them. That's why you see such a, a, an effort uh, to motion to dismiss it out. Once you get to discovery, especially on 90 percent of our cases, they, there's no, no it, there's nothing they can do. There's no defense of the indefensible position. So, well, with that said, uh, two of the cases, uh, we, we tried to do the discovery conference and, you know, the opposing attorney instantly puts in something uh, that he's not ready for discovery. And then, of course, the magistrate's recommendations on, on one of them uh, went in that uh, we don't need discovery. Yeah, you do. If you if you factually and facially have pled sufficiently, which we have. So let's let's define the two. 
factually means affidavits, verifications, and exhibits which substantiate your factual uh, claims. Facially is your alleged alleged uh, alleging, right? How it happened subjectively that you need to prove through uh, uh, the discovery process. Yep. But once you meet those, yeah, stories, depositions, yes, that's right. So the only way they, they that they could infer reasonably that uh, to the plaintiff on every single one of our cases, by the way, every single one of our cases. Uh, the essential elements are pled for each statutory cause of action. The essential elements are pled for every single one of my common law violations. All those essential elements are pled, right, with facts and evidence and facial uh, plausibility. And, and look, it's not just factual plausibility. It's factual and facial. That's, that's, that's the plausibility standard, which is another thing that your magistrate left out, by the way. Because yeah, you no. have <laughs> but you have these and then they're supposed to be liberally construed for the pro se plaintiff. But guess what? Guess what we are finding? They are going to go through you with a fine tooth comb. They're not. You know, what's, you know, not, not to, I want to get to this question on the screen here from Bible book club, but um, not, not to get off in the left field. Um, whoops. Sorry. Sorry, justice. I know you're doing that. Um, I had another case, which, you know, I knew was, was just going to go basically just going to go to die. Um, and in my local court rules, if you're the, there's a rule there that says, if you're going to submit a motion for leave to amend, you have to submit the proposed amended complaint and you're supposed to redline it. There's a little footnote to that that says, unless you're pro se, then you don't have to do that. So guess what this same stupid magistrate judge did? In that report and recommendation, she cited the fact that we didn't submit it redline, but she omitted the fact that the rules state that the pro se's don't have to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it, it never ends. But um, Bible Book Club asks a really good question. Constitutional guarantees are waived in a 1983 action where you're getting this information. Um, I want to be very clear. I never said that they're waived. What I am saying is when you're choosing to move, if your cause of action is a statutory cause of action, you're choosing to move under rights and privileges that are granted to you by Congress. You're not choosing to move under causes of action that are granted to you by your creator. Does that make sense? I want to make sure we're very clear on that. I'm not saying that you're, those are waived. What I'm saying is the courts look at them differently as opposed to, hey, wait a second. This guy is a public servant. This guy swore an oath to protect my rights. This guy violated that oath and broke my rights. He has now a breach of fiduciary duty to me. That's a common law cause of action. You can plead that all day long, and there's nothing that anybody in Congress can do about it. All I'm Except saying Louisiana. is... <laughs> Louisiana. Um, so all I'm saying is that Congress... You know, they, they had the right idea, you know, because all of these things have been in place since the post-Civil War. And it's like Brandon talked about. You had this you had this democratic socialist um, organization. They were not a racist organization. They were hell-bent on changing our republic to a socialist Marxist government, and they still are. And so Congress had the right idea. We're like, well, hey, let's let's. 
let's go ahead and, and give this statutory right to people. But guess what? According to the Constitution, can Congress give anything to people that they are not lawfully delegated from we the people? So for those of you who are watching, you can see Erica giving you that no, 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 no. She's shaking her head no. So this is where Congress has lost it. They take the approach of, well, the Constitution doesn't say we can't do this. No, that's not. This is a contract. And the terms of the contract are listed and spelled out. And if it's not expressly listed in the contract, you are prohibited from doing so. Matter of fact, each one of your state's constitution is going to find something along the lines that says the provisions in this constitution are both prohibitory and mandatory. What that means is if it's not written here, you can't do it. And if you do it anyway, that law is null and void. But see, the problem we have is like Brandon says, we have this we have this private member association, the Bar Association, that has taken over our beautiful justice system and has perverted it, and they have, they have convoluted all of these wonderful, brilliant minds to believe that if it's written on a piece of paper, voted on by all these people, signed by some guy sitting in a White House, then it is gospel truth. That is not true. I believe it's intentional weaponization. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, 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 you're right. That's what it is. Uh, so when you we weaponize government to inflict totalitarian authoritative measures, uh, that's exactly what it is. That the government has been weaponized in the modern administrative state, uh, which was what Woodrow Wilson uh, viewed, is a rule by unelected uh, experts, right? And that is the intention. That's what we saw where these unelected bureaucrats uh, who no are intellectual uh, geniuses, no more than the peasant class, right? And it's, a, it's really what is called a technocracy. Mm -hmm. um, so Just Me says the ABA, which is the American Bar Association, just created a bipartisan task force to educate Americans about our democracy. Good luck with that. <laughs> we don't live in a democracy. We never have and we never will. So... Um, anyway, so guys, we're coming up on an hour and 45 minutes. Um, I do want to thank my guest, Brandon, for being here. Thanks, buddy. It's always good to have you on the show. Really appreciate your insight. I really just, again, wanted to go over. I mean, you guys see why when I first read this report, I'm like, you have got to be. She actually wrote this and signed her name to it. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of work to do as far as that goes for that particular case. But I'm just telling you guys, be prepared. You've got to be in this for the long haul. You have to – because eventually you're going to get to an adult in the room that's going to go, where are you getting this information? Not only are you misquoting what we said, right, because she was quoting opinions from the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Not only are you misquoting what we said, it's completely irrelevant to the case at hand. So stick to your principles. Stick to your guns. You guys are going to be just fine. Um, as always, ask your questions, drop them in the Telegram chat. Um, and I apologize ahead of time for those of you who only see us on YouTube or any of these others. Um, I, I don't get into our YouTube much and I don't see the comments on our videos. I, I need to do a better job of that. And I will, you know, justice has been doing a great job of sending me things, um, when you guys do that stuff. So we, we really appreciate all of you who watch us and support us. Thank you so much. As you guys know, justice has been. Um, advertising some new uh, new swag 
She wants to put some constitutional amendments on some of our shirts. So thank you to those of you who are looking at those or buying those. I appreciate you all. Um, but as usual, like the video, share it with your friends, subscribe to our videos, subscribe to our channels on the podcasts, wherever you might be finding us. It really helps us get the word out. And I, I just I feel so blessed. I mean, we started this at the end of January. Here we are in August, and we are just rocking and rolling, and you guys, and it's all because of you. So thank all of you. Thank you to Justice and Erica, my beautiful co-hosts, for helping out. Um, and, and as always, thanks for Brandon for having him on as, 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 uh, as a guest. So with that, you guys, I'm going to sign off. Uh, Erica, Justice, Brandon, any closing thoughts you guys want to leave us with? Have a good week, everybody. Weekend. I'm going to say keep praying, people. Short and sweet to the point. I love it. Brandon, anything you want to say before we, we sign off? Thank you for having me, and I uh, look forward to the next time. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Everybody, God bless you all. We, we love you, like I said before. Um, stand up for what's right. Stand up for your principles. Um, God will protect you. We know it. With that, we're going to sign off till next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye, Brandon. Bye.